We have a good number present this morning. We have visitors with us. We're glad you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to Luke, the seventh chapter. Last Lord's Day morning, we began a four-part series of looking at Luke chapter 7, looking at four independent studies, but linking them together because they're all found in Luke 7. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 10, and we talked about the man who made Jesus marvel. Here was a Gentile, a centurion, who sent a servant to go to Jesus and bid him to come to his house to heal his servant. And consequently, Jesus marveled at the, at the faith this man had. And so we talked about the man who made Jesus marvel. I want us to pick up at verse 11 now and go through verse 17. And this is the story of God has visited his people. And you'll see that phrase found in our text. Not the first time it's found in the book of Luke, but we'll see that later in our context. Let's begin reading at verse 11. 11 through 17. Now it happened the day after, that is the events of verses 1 through 10, that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And we won't look at a parallel account because Luke is the only one who records this story. Often the case of some of the stories found in Luke are repeated in Matthew and in Mark, but not this one. This is only found in the book of Luke. It's one of the three recorded accounts of raising the dead. Now, there were others that were raised, but the three accounts of Jesus raising the dead, we have the daughter of Jairus, found in Mark chapter 5. We have in John 11, the case of Lazarus, Lazarus, and then we have this case of the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7. And so it's one of those three cases. Now, when Jesus raised the young man and presented him to his mother, we notice that the witnesses drew their conclusion, and their conclusion was, God has visited his people. And so notice this phrase in verse 16. You might underline that phrase. God has visited his people. And so let's talk this morning about God has visited his people. Now I said this wasn't the first time this phrase was used. Over in Luke chapter 1, if you'll turn back over to Luke chapter 1, and notice in verse 68, the text said, this was the prophecy of Zacharias, the father of John. He said, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And so here is a phrase that talks about God visiting his people, meaning that God brings the Savior to the world. This was a prophecy, but God's bringing the Savior to the world, and they're concluding this must be the one where God has visited his people. 
And we'll see more evidence of that as we go along. Let's go back to Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, and talk about the setting. This takes place in the city of Nain. This is the Sea of Galilee, and that within the circle is the city of Nain. Not far, Nain, not far from Nazareth. This is a city where Jesus enters the city, and it's a walled city. And as Jesus enters near the gate, there is a group coming with him, his disciples, and a large crowd, how large, we're not told, but coming out of the gate of the city, as Jesus approaches the city, is what we would call a funeral procession. A large crowd it is that's coming out of the city. And Jesus notices there's a dead man, a young man who is dead, who is being carried in the coffin, open coffin, or your English standard will say the beer. That is, the, the coffin or that which upon the dead would set. And so he's carrying them, or they're carrying him out. And Jesus sees the mother weeping, and he says to the mother, do not weep, and goes over to the young man who is on the stretcher of the coffin and tells him to arise, and he begins to set up and he begins to speak, and he takes him back and presents him to his mother. It is the reaction that we're interested in here. And that is, they stood in awe, the fear came upon all the people, and they said, a prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. So let's talk about some things that we learn from this story, and that we see in the story of God visiting his people. Let's begin now, and notice this, first of all, I see the compassion of the Lord. I see something about the compassion of the Lord. First, let's establish that this was particularly a bad circumstance and situation that Jesus encounters. He's making his way into the city, and anytime you see a funeral procession, that's a bad circumstance, no matter what or who may be involved. Here's the circumstance. Jesus sees a mother who's lost her son. I want to suggest to you that losing a loved one is bad, but this is in reversed order. And what I mean by that, you would think it would be the son that would be burying his mother or burying his father. That's the natural order of things that we think, that the children are going to outlive their parents, but not in this case. Here we have a mother that's burying her son. Things are in reversed order. This is a particularly bad circumstance. He's also identified as being young, which suggests this death obviously is premature. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know why he died. But if he's young, this is a premature death. And furthermore, it perhaps is unexpected, more evidence of that given in the text a little bit later. So it very well may have been an unexpected death. And so it's something that caught her by surprise, perhaps, though we don't know for sure. But it's add to the fact that she is a widow, the text says. Go back to your text in Luke chapter 7, and notice that he says that this was her only son, and that is, he, and she was a widow. She doesn't have his father there with her to comfort her and console her in the losing of the son. And so as far as other children, there is no one else there to comfort her. There is not a, a mate to comfort her during the midst of all of this. This is a particularly bad circumstance. Let's add another thing that makes it bad. And the text says this was her only son. That doesn't make it any easier when you have multiple children and you lose one, but when that's the only child that you have, there is no one else there to comfort you. She, her husband is gone. No other children are there. Again, I suggest to you, Jesus ran into a particularly bad circumstance. But I want you to notice with me, beginning at verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. 
Jesus was moved with compassion. Let's define compassion. Compassion simply means pity. It is a strong term here that means from the depth. Lexham says it means deep empathy. In other words, he put himself in her place. What would it be like to be this woman who's lost her husband and lost her only son, perhaps a premature and unexpected death? What would it be like to feel in her, to be in her shoes and to feel what she's feeling? The text said Jesus had compassion on her. Now let's look at some other texts and just notice the fact that many times Jesus would see someone under various circumstances and he would be moved with compassion. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14 and in verse 14. We're coming back to Luke, but let's go to Matthew chapter 14 and look at something in chapter 14, 15, and later in chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, this is the case just prior to the feeding of the 5,000. There is a multitude that comes. Notice at verse 13 that the multitudes heard it and they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus came out and saw the great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. This is even before he feeds them. But notice he looks at the multitude and he knows they have sick among them. And the text says not only did he have compassion, but he was moved with compassion. Interesting phrase. Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 15 now. Look at verse 32. Chapter 15 and in verse 32. This is the occasion of the feeding of the 4,000. <coughs> and Jesus called his disciples and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And so he tells them, he said, I do not want to send them away hungry lest they be faint in the way. And so he told his disciples then to... Uh, what, what did they have? And he fed the 4,000. But I'm not interested in the miracle there, but what prompted that miracle was he sees the 4,000 and he's moved with compassion, the text says. Let's go one more time in Matthew, and this time in the 20th division. Matthew 20 and in verse 34, I'm just trying to paint a picture that Jesus often saw people, whether they're sick or they're hungry, or whatever the circumstances, moved with compassion. Here was two blind men, you remember, Mark identifies one of them as Bartimaeus. He's not identified here, but there were two blind men that are mentioned here sitting by the road, and the text says they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And notice at verse 34, when, when Jesus asked them at verse 33, what do you want from me? That you open our eyes. That's what we want. We're blind. We want to be able to see. So Jesus had, here's our word, compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately they gained their sight. So whether it's people who were sick, whether it's people who were hungry, or someone who was blind, Jesus was moved with compassion, the text said. Now let's go to another text. This time in the book of Mark chapter 1 and in verse 41. Mark chapter 1 and in verse 41. Here was the case of a leper. And again we see this concept of Jesus, that a leper came and said, If you're willing, can you make me clean? And in verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion and put out his hand and touched him. I am willing to be cleansed. So whatever the circumstance, Jesus moved with compassion. He did that on this occasion in Luke chapter, chapter 7. Now the Lord has compassion on us too. And I want us to see that not only did Jesus have compassion for those that were sick or those that were hungry, that were in his day when he was on earth, but he has compassion on us too. That same compassion that moved him, 
he has that compassion toward us. Let's go to Isaiah 53 and in verse 4. The text says he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Now if that's not deep empathy and pity and feeling what we feel or putting himself in our circumstance, that is what would it be like to have those sins and can't do anything about that? So what did he do? He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. That is compassion. He has compassion on us. Let's go to the book of Hebrews now. You say, I understand that, the sacrifice that he made, he had compassion. But let's go to chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. This is a passage describing Jesus becoming flesh. And in his becoming flesh and becoming like his brethren, he did that for our benefit. And notice what he says. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. See his argument? We'll see more about this from Hebrews chapter 4 in a moment. His argument is that the fact that Jesus was in the flesh and he lived on earth and he was tempted and he suffered, that puts him in a position to feel what we feel and be moved with compassion toward us. And he can help us. How? We'll see in a moment. Let's go again to James chapter 5. And in verse 11, we quote this passage frequently to talk about the patience of Job. Remember the patience or the endurance of Job. And notice what he says, in that we count, uh, indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the patience or the perseverance of Job and seen the end. This is the aim or the purpose or the goal intended by the Lord. What was that aim or that goal or that purpose? That the Lord is very compassionate, compassionate and merciful. That, that was the, the goal or what the Lord had in dealing with Job is to demonstrate he's compassionate and he's merciful. That was the lesson we're supposed to get. Now, here's another thing we need to consider. This was a bad situation Jesus came upon and he's moved with compassion. He often was moved with compassion. He has compassion on us. And what we learn from that is we ought to imitate that and have compassion for other people. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 8. And one of the duties of being holy, which is what this book is about, by the way, being holy in all of our conduct. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, all of you be of one mind, be united. That's one of our responsibilities of being holy. Now notice the next phrase that he says, having compassion for one another. Here is compassion that we should have for our fellow brethren. In other words, we ought to feel what they feel. We ought to have this deep empathy. Put yourself in their shoes and put yourself in a position of, of feeling what they feel and going through the experience they're going through, whatever it may be. We ought to be moved with compassion. Let's go to the book of Jude and look at verse 22. Now, verse 22 of Jude, there is some textual problem there of question concerning what, what translation is correct on, in Jude verse 22. One translation will say at verse 22, and, and some having compassion, making a distinction or difference, New King James, King James, or having uh, have mercy on those who doubt, like the English Standard Version. And that's the distinction. Which is that? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure. 
But here seems to be the point. That he's talking about reaching out and influencing and teaching others. Here's the point I want us to see. We should have compassion for those that we teach. So it may be a fellow Christian you're trying to teach. It may be someone in the world you're trying to teach. It may be someone in the family you're trying to teach. That's the context he's talking about. So let's go back and pick up a verse before that and see if we can make some sense of this. Look at Jude verse 21. Keep yourselves in love, looking for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, and if the English standard be correct, those who doubt. So here is someone who is doubting, has problems with their doubts. You have compassion on them. You're trying to influence them. On others, notice verse 23, save with fear pulling them out of the fire. In other words, we have to deal with people based upon their circumstance and based upon whether or not they are rebelling or do they, do they, are they weak or they may be uh, having some doubts. So here's the point of verse 22, that you have compassion on them that is, those who have this doubt are making distinctions, those who are making some difference, that is, they are, there's some doubts in their mind, have compassion on those as you teach. Put yourself in their place and you're better able, equipped to teach them. That's part of the point of verse 22. Let's go to chapter 12. We've mentioned multiple times, Romans 12 deals with relationships. All relationships that we have are touched upon in Romans chapter 12. Verse 15 talks about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. In other words, someone who's weeping like this widow who's lost her son. Jesus is weeping with her. In other words, he has this deep empathy and he feels what it's like to be in her shoes. And thus he was moved with compassion. We learn a lesson about the compassion of the Lord. Here's the second lesson I learned from this context where God has visited his people. And that is that Jesus comes to help in times of sorrow. I remind you, this was a funeral procession. What a sad day this was, as it would be on any funeral occasion. The large crowd, as well as the fact that he was young, may suggest that this was unexpected. We have no other information about that. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, the large crowd may suggest that, and the fact that he was young may suggest this was an unexpected death. It's obviously premature, as we've already mentioned. And so this, again, is a funeral possession. There's a lot of mourning going on. How do I know? Well, he tells the mother not to weep, so she's weeping, obviously. There is a large crowd coming out of the gate of the city in this funeral procession. And so there's a lot of mourning. This is a dismal occasion. That's all I'm trying to paint for you. This is not a party. This is not where, where a festivity uh, set, setting. This is a sad circumstance that Jesus comes upon. A lot of mourning, perhaps an unexpected death. What a sad day. Now I want you to notice two extremes of sorrow and an extreme of joy. In fact, you're going to see a, a woman who is perhaps at her lowest moment in her life been going from that in just a few moments to the highest moment of her life. Let's see if we don't see that. Look at verse 13. Here's the low point. Back to Luke 7, verse 13. The low point, perhaps the lowest in her life was, she was weeping. When Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. What does that suggest? She's mourning the loss of her son. There isn't a lower moment in her life than this. 
Perhaps this was worse. In fact, it probably was worse than when she buried her husband. This is the lowest moment. But now go to verse 15. Jesus said to the young man, Arise, and he arose and began to speak, and he takes him and presents him to his mother. Here's your son. He's alive and talking. Now, can you imagine the, the excitement she must have experienced? The joy that she must have known. You see, all the hope, all the life, all the joy, all the dreams have been restored. Everything she was thinking about that she had lost with reference to losing her son has now been regained. And what was the one thing that changed all of that? Well, go from verse 13, the beginning of verse 13 to verse 15, and Jesus came in the midst of that. That was the one thing that made the difference. Here was the lowest point in her life. Here's the highest point in her life. And what difference that was made between that? And that is Jesus came along. So here's something I'm learning from this. I'm learning that Jesus is there to help in our times of sorrow. He came along when this woman was at her lowest point, and he helped this woman in her lowest point. And the Lord will help us too. How so? Well, he's there to help us in time of need. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4 and put that in its context. Because this may well fit you and may describe what's going on in your life right at this very moment in your life. So what is Hebrews chapters 3 and 4? By chapter 3, and by that I mean chapter 3 and 4. Not chapter 3 and verse 4, but those two chapters. Those two chapters are drawing a parallel between the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, making their way through the wilderness before they make it to their promised land. They're headed to the promised land. What happened to them? Well, they came out of Egypt, but many of them fell before they ever made it to the promised land. And the warning is, the same thing could happen to you. We come out of our bondage or Egypt of sin. We're in our wilderness wanderings, headed toward the promised land. We could fall too. Now, in their journey in the wilderness, they had problems and trials and tribulation. And so will we. So now let's go to the context, beginning at verse 14. Here's his point. We have a high priest to help us in the times of our trials. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold on for dear life to what you believe and what you've confessed. For we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, you, you, I wish I had some help. As I make this journey, I'm going to have struggles. I'm going to have trials. I'm going to have temptations. I'm going to have doubts. I'm going to have problems along the way. Where do I get any help for that? Well, we have a high priest. We say, well, I'm not sure that he... Yeah, he does understand. Because, you see, he was tempted just like we are. Now then, verse 15, verse 16. Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy... There's your compassion. And find grace to help in time of need. We're going to go through temptation and weakness, but we have a high priest to help us in the midst of that. You're not in this alone. And so Jesus comes in our time of need. You say, what timing? This woman was going out to bury her son. Just so happens Jesus makes his way into the city and runs into her. What timing? Wow. Wasn't that wonderful for her? What timing? He's there to help us too. He's coming into the gate as you're going out of the gate with all of your problems. He's doing the very same thing for us. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18. He comforts us in times of sorrow. What was the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Well, the context is dealing with loved ones that have gone on. 
And some of the Thessalonians perhaps misunderstood. I'm not sure we, we, they were getting the picture. I, I, I'm not sure what happens. And are we now at a disadvantage? Or maybe they're at a disadvantage if, if the Lord comes back. What, what, what's the, the situation here? And so Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, explains there is no disadvantage whether you're dead or alive when Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns, those who are dead will be raised and then we'll all be caught up together and meet him in the air. There's no disadvantage. And then notice what he says at verse 18. Having explained all of that about death, he said, therefore comfort one another with these words. That should be comforting to have a clear understanding of what happens in the end of time. Furthermore, he gives us hope. Let's go to Romans 8, put it in its context. Romans 8 deals with suffering, tribulation, trials that we go through. That's not all that's dealt with there. But notice that he talks about uh, the suffering. Romans 8, verse 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, there's going to be suffering. What are some things that will help you go through your suffering and your trials and tribulation? Well, one of the things he mentioned, the whole creation groans and travails, verse 22. Perhaps talking about the whole, the whole group of the people of God. You're not the only one in this. But notice what he said beginning at verse 24 that will help you. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For what does a man still hope for? Uh, for what he sees. For if we have hope, for if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance or patience or endurance. What am I learning from that? I'm learning that Jesus gives us hope and reminds us of that hope and helps us through those trials. He helps us with our problems. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Sometimes some, a friend may say, come, come to me with your problems and let me help you. And they may mean that and they may not mean that. They may not be able to help you with your problems, but the Lord says, bring your cares and cast them upon me because I care for you. He does mean that and he can help with that. Furthermore, he mediates for us. We have one mediator. That is, he stands between us and God and mediates for us, and he intercedes on our behalf. He ever lives to make intercession for us. You say, I wish I, wished I had somebody to help me. The Lord is in heaven now pleading to God on your behalf. He ever lives to make intercession for us. God, indeed, has visited his people. Here's the third lesson I'm learning from this context. I see something about the power of Jesus in this context. First, he has power over death. He had power over the Hadean realm. If we understand Luke 16, when this young man died, his body is still here, about to be committed to the grave, but his spirit has gone to the Hadean realm. And Jesus has power over that so that he could bring the spirit back from the Hadean realm and join it together again with the body. Jesus has power. He just speaks and one comes forth from the dead. All he had to do was to go over to the open coffin or the bier and say to him, young man, arise. And he arose and began to speak. That's power. Now, what did that prove? Well, that was evidence of his claim. Let's talk about the claims that he made. Let's go to John chapter 5. What, what does this power mean to us? You say, I don't think I'm going to run into Jesus and I'm not going to see him raise the dead. And if I have a loved one die, Jesus is not going to come and raise him from the dead and give him back to me. That's not going to happen, I'm, I'm sure. So what does all this mean to me? Well, seeing the evidence, that is the miracle, that is evidence of his claim. What claims did he make? 
Well, in John chapter 5, when he'd worked a, a miracle earlier in the chapter, the question began to be raised about, uh, should he be doing this on the Sabbath? And maybe he's done something wrong, the Pharisees thought. And I want you to notice beginning at verse 17, he said, my father has been working until now and I've been working. They understood what that meant. He was claiming God as his father. And that was a claim that he was the son of God. That was his claim. They thought that was the claim because they said he makes himself, verse 18, equal with God. He's claiming to be deity is what he's claiming. He's claiming to be the son of God. And that's blasphemy now. Not only has he violated the Sabbath, but now he's blasphemed. And then the rest of the chapter is evidence for that claim. When Jesus works this miracle and shows power over death, it's evidence of his claim. His miracles prove his claim. Many other signs did Jesus in the midst of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the conclusion of the book of John. Now, he has power to lift us too. And this is where the rubber begins to meet the road for us. He gives us, he has power to lift us from the death from sin. You say, well, he lifted him from physical death. That's true. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. This will be part of our study next week in our Bible classes in Ephesians 2. But notice the picture in Ephesians 2 and in verse 3. The state that, that one is in outside of Christ when they're in sin. Look at verse 3. Among whom you once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, that is long established practice, children of wrath just as others. We, we were deep in sin, Paul said. We were so deep in sin, that was our, our secondary practice. We'd just become nature to us to keep sinning. We lived that kind of ungodly life. What was your relationship to God, Paul? Look at verse 12. And at that time we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth and the strangers of the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were lost. What's the point of Ephesians 2? Christ lifts us from that. He can lift us from the trial. Now, this is interesting because Timothy, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was uh, kind of timid, it seems. And he's going to face trials and suffering. And one of the points Paul is making is, don't be ashamed. Boldly go through the trials and the tribulations and the suffering you face, knowing this, knowing what? Look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a strong mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or me, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for uh, the gospel according to the power of God. That's what we're talking about, the power of God. How does the power of God help Timothy in the trials of life? Well, look at verse 9. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. What's his point? The same God that had the power to send his son to die upon the cross for you is the same God that will help you through the trials of life, Timothy. Don't be ashamed. Don't shrink back. Press on boldly. The same God that could bring his son and deliver him and raise him from the dead is the same God that will help you through your trials and tribulations. That's his point. But I'll tell you something else he can do. He can, he can deliver us and lift us from the grave of death itself, that is physical death. All that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. That is, in the day of judgment, the Lord will just speak as he did to this young man. Say, come forth. And everyone in the grave, including you, if you're in the grave, will come forth. He has that power. Here's something else. 
the reaction to the power of Jesus. This is what fascinates me about this story of God has visited his people. And that is the reaction of the crowd. And so let's go back to our text in Luke chapter 7 and get that in the context and then we'll list the things that are found. Three things that are found here in this context. Now notice at verse 15 is where the young man began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Now everybody sees that. There's a large crowd with Jesus. There's a large crowd coming out. There's a multitude here. Now verse 16 says, verse 16 and 17 is the summary of the three points. Let's see if we can find them. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Here's the first thing I see. There was great fear came upon them. There was great fear that came upon them. The English Standard says, and your footnote in the New, New King James will say, fear seized them. That's interesting. That same word for seized, found in the English Standard, is translated overtaken, if you're overtaken in a fault, or overtaken in, in a, a temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. In other words, this was not a, not a gradual thing in this instance where, where one might be studying and he's thinking and he's pondering and he's beginning to see things more about the Lord and think it's beginning to come to light and he's gradually growing into the fear of God. They were, they were overwhelmed with fear. It's as if fear had reached out and seized them and grabbed a hold of them. They're overwhelmed with fear. I like the English standard rendering of that. They were seized with fear. Now, what does fear mean? In this text, it seems to focus on one side of the coin of fear. The coin of fear has two sides to that meaning. On the one side is awe and respect, and the other side of fear has to do with being afraid of displeasing God. We'll say more about that in a second. But this seems to focus on this awe and this honor and this admiration and respect. Much like Jonah 1 in verse 9. Do you remember when Jonah identified himself on the boat? I am a Hebrew, one who fears God. Who made the sea and the dry land, he said. He's focusing on the creation power of God. His fear is focused on the awe and the majesty and the power and the might. I stand in awe of all of that. How do I know that's how it's used here? Notice their reaction. Fear came upon them all and what they say. They didn't say, oh, I'm afraid of him. Wait a minute, let's back away from Jesus. I, I don't want to get close to him. Do you see what he did? He just raised the dead. Their reaction was, a great prophet has been here and God has visited his people. This man is deity. That's the sense of fear here in this context. But fear can also have reference to being afraid of displeasing God. The warning of the prophet was in Acts 13, 40, that beware lest that which the prophets had warned them come upon you. And the warning was that they would perish. We ought to be fearful of losing our soul. Fear, if it is genuinely in our hearts, motivates service. Every nation, he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted of him, Cornelius was told. So one of the reaction was, they were seized with fear. Here was a second reaction. They glorified and they praised God. They glorified, verse 16, glorified God. And what did they say? Well, a prophet has risen up and God has visited his people. 
In other words, this man is either a prophet or he was sent by God, seems to be the point. This, this, ain't a, this is not an ordinary man. In other words, they're acknowledging this is a work of God. They perceive this must be a prophet. And the result was we're going to praise God for that is what we're going to do. That was their reaction. Here's the third of those three reactions. There was the proclamation. Look at verse 17. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. There was a report. In other words, they began to tell it. It wasn't like three years later someone said, did you ever hear about that case over at Nain where, no, 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 think I ever heard about that. I, I never heard anybody talk. No, this, this was a widespread report. People began to tell it everywhere. Here's, let me tell you what happened at Nain. I was there. I was, I was in the crowd. I was coming out of the city with the mother. And here's what he did. And someone else could say, you know what? I was with Jesus as we went in. And you know what he did? He went and talked to this young man. And he rose. Began to speak. And people began to shout, God has visited his people. You see, when they saw the power of God and when we see the power of God, we need to be telling other people. Have you seen the power of God to the point you say, you know what, I'm impressed. I stand in awe. I'm seized with awe and fear. I'm going to tell other people. I'm going to carry that gospel to someone else. Now let's summarize those three points. What was their reaction? There was fear. They were glorified and praised God in the proclamation. What does that mean to us? That means we need to stand in awe. And we need to worship and honor God. And try to influence other people. And so what do we take away from this study? Here was a case where God has visited his people, but it was the reaction that was most impressive. The reaction. I don't mean it's more impressive than what Jesus did, but it's impressive of what, how the people reacted to that. They first of all stood in awe, and then they glorified God, and they tried to influence other people. Are you impressed that God has visited his people? Are you, have you come to recognize, I, I see in Jesus that this is God visiting his people? A prophet has risen up among us. I'm impressed. I'm seized with fear. And if that's the case, we ought to be those that worship and honor God and try to influence others. Now, here's what I learned as a practical thing from that. If I'm not trying to influence others with the gospel, maybe I'm not seized with fear. Go back to verse 17 in our text. And this report about him went throughout. Reckon why they did that. Reckon why they ran and told other people, you know what just happened over there at Nain? You won't believe what I saw over there. Because they were seized with fear. Are you carrying the gospel to someone else? Are you sharing, trying to influence others with the gospel? If not, maybe we're not being seized with fear. There's something else I noticed practical in this context. Look at point two up here, point B. They worshiped and honored God because they were seized with fear. Are you one that's driven to go and praise God and worship God because you're seized with fear? It's like fear has overwhelmed you. You stand in such awe. Or is it that, okay, I'm, I'm impressed with God, all right, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to overdo it. Or are you seized with fear to the point you're driven to go and praise your almighty God? God has visited his people, Luke chapter 7, 11 to 17. Four things. The compassion of the Lord, Jesus comes to help us in times of sorrow. The power of Jesus and the reaction to that power are some practical things that we can learn. 
There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God, but you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?